You know, the last couple of weeks we had some people that were missing from church, uh, you may have noticed, uh, but they were in Brazil on a missions trip. I had the opportunity to talk to Tim Nicholas yesterday during Upward about his trip, and it really sounded like an exciting time. I know that they had some impactful ministry while they were there, uh, and I won't steal too much for their thunder, but they are going to come up and give us an update. So uh, I believe Joe Dukes is going to be the first one to come up and, and share with us. Um, I am wearing what they wear in Brazil, okay? I want you to know that. I'm wearing my Javianas. Um, I did not put shorts on like I might normally have there, and uh, I have my MCB shirt on. MCB is BCM in Brazil. We run four camps, four weeks of camp in January and July. We run a camp for elementary age, teenagers, slum kids, and then English camp. And English camp is designed not to teach English mainly, but as evangelism and discipleship, to evangelize those who are lost and to disciple those who are believers, encourage them in their walk with, with the Lord. And English is secondary, but we do do a good job of teaching English, and we had some great English teachers in, in this team that went. December 1, there was no team, uh, except for myself. And God put together 13 people that went and I thank God for the three, in addition to myself, that went from Mount Calvary because they did a tremendous job of ministry. Um, it was a blessing to see what God did through your prayers, through your support, and through the gifting that each of them have to be involved in this ministry. I'm going to let them go on and talk about what it was for them because that's more important in some ways. Good morning. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your prayers and support. You know, you, you hear that when people go on a mission trip, but you certainly can feel, and we certainly felt as a team, your uh, prayers and financial support um, for the trip. Uh, some of you may know I was actually born in Brazil. My parents were missionaries, so I lived there till the age of seven, and then my parents moved back to the States. So, you know, I had a Brazilian passport. I had an American passport. So when I was asked, oh, around December 18th, do you want to go to a mission trip? I honestly had no reason to, to say no. So I said, all right, Lord, I'll go. And then, you know, I'm going to Brazil, so I'm thinking, eh, I've, I was born there, I live there, I know what I'm getting myself into. But God really worked uh, in my life, and it was something that I really needed in my own life um, to go on a mission trip. He challenged me really in a couple areas. Uh, the first area in the, in the area of my priorities. One of our first days that we were there, we, were, we went to the favelas, which is basically these huge neighborhoods, which are slums. And, um, you know, there's a camp ministry there. And we were told and, and got to experience the sights and the smells of, of what poverty feels like. And when you go into, go into these huge neighborhoods, there are sometimes thousands, uh, several thousand, sometimes up to 10,000 people. The only reason why it was safe for us to, to go in was because there was missionaries from BCM that are known in the community. So it was safe for us to go in there. So we go in there. And even though I was prepared mentally for what you would see there's nothing that can prepare you to see the poverty that you see, see children that you know, um, as we were explaining, and you could feel that have, are involved in sex trade, and you see even parents using their kids, getting them addicted to drugs, and using them as drug transfers and different things. To, to know it intellectually is one thing, but to go there and to feel that is something different. And it really um, challenged me in, in my priorities. You know, I, we joke around with my different friends of you know, how, how tough life is for me, if, you know, if my Wi-Fi isn't so strong upstairs and how difficult that is. But when you, when you go, to, go to a country and you see that poverty and just, just what a couple dollars will do, and I know those that have been on mission trips have said that, but until you go through it, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, actually. See, I 
Joe and I caught eyes one time, and I think both of us could have wept pretty quickly there just in, in experiencing that. Uh, the other thing that really God challenged me is just in sharing my faith. And, um, you know, that's not something that comes naturally to me. I'm more of an introvert, so it's not something that I, I know I, I'm supposed to do, but uh, I don't, I'm not always faithful in that. But God really challenged me, and I knew that was one of the reasons that I needed to go on the trip and just had the opportunity to share on the plane there and just several different opportunities to, to share uh, the good news of Christ. Um, I think there was probably anywhere from 8 to 10 that accepted Christ as their Savior throughout the trip and probably some others that we're not aware of. Um, one guy in particular who didn't accept Christ yet, but we are praying every day uh, that he will. His name is Augusto, and um, he knew English relatively well, and he knew some colorful English language. First day I met him, we started talking. He had some different words that were curse words that were a little different from what the other campers were using, but God really used all of us as a team and, and just to continue to talk to him. And, and really, by the end of the time, I, I told him, I said, listen, we, we're like a Christian SWAT team. Okay, and we are going to keep praying for you. And um, so, you know, now in our modern age, we're friends on Facebook. So who knew God could use Facebook for something good? But, you know, we're uh, so we're back and forth and praying for him. And I just hope that you keep him in prayer, um, that Augusto someday will come to know him as his personal savior. Thank you again for the opportunity to serve. Um. I want to say thank you for um, helping and supporting us to getting us there. Um, two days before the trip, I still didn't even know if I was going because my visa hadn't come yet. So I was like, okay, Lord, if you don't want me to go, it's okay. But um, I would have never guessed that this one trip would have changed my life. Um, it's hard to put into words the feelings you have when you're there. I fell in love with the country, the camp, the people. And... Um, it's, it was definitely a life-changing experience. Um, when we visited the, the slums, I, I didn't know what to expect, so it's not like I had a picture in my mind already what it was going to be like. So I got there, and I just felt completely broken for these people. These kids have literally, like, no chance at life. And so the only thing that you can give them would be the love of Jesus. And although I couldn't, you know, speak Portuguese and tell them, Directly, we had um, translators, and just seeing them light up through the through the message that one of our um, team members gave, it was amazing. And um, before this trip, I d thought I had a plan for what I was going to do with college, and I was still really worried about it. But coming back home, I still don't know yet, but that's okay because I know wherever God wants me to go is where I'll end up, and. Now, I've never been more ready just to get up and go and serve him, whether it's here or whether it's another country. I just can't wait to see where he puts me. So thank you. Um, my role uh, was to be the worship leader, the worship pastor of the camp, and um, they really didn't need me. The band there was incredibly accomplished, um, but they needed to do this beat, spoke English, so I was able to go and do that. Um, the things that touched me the most, I think, were seeing the children in the poverty. Um, uh, definitely a life-altering experience to see just, just so much um, need and um, the condition that the, the children and the people live in. Um, but the other thing, um, a happy thing, was I was sharing with the, the band during rehearsal this morning, is to go 4,300 miles to another country where I don't know the people, I can't speak their language, I've never seen them before, um, 
but to worship in complete unity. <laughs> it was awesome. Simply awesome. I don't know about you, but I could have heard a little bit more from the team and probably a little less from me this morning. How about that? Uh, uh, just uh, awesome to hear what God did through them and, and awesome to hear how uh, not only he used them in ministry, but ministered to their hearts. There's such a great... Uh, great testimony, and I'm sure that uh, they'd be more than happy to talk with you if you pull them aside afterwards or throughout the, these next few weeks and just share all the stories that I'm sure that they have. But, uh, uh, but again, thank you to you who gave and who prayed uh, and, and allowed them to go on this trip. It's just a, an amazing thing, and, and, and our, our church is such a generous church, and, and just thank you for, for all that uh, helped them get there to Brazil and uh, and what a great, great um, opportunity that they had. Well, this morning we're continuing our, our, our series called Pick a Parable, Stories Teaching Truth. Uh, and, you know, this was your opportunity. We polled you to, uh, to choose some parables that you want us to, uh, uh, to try to do our best and communicate and explain uh, to you. And so last week, Dick started with the, the parable of uh, uh, new wine and old wine skins. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to look at another one. But last week, Dick reminded us that, uh, you know, parables are, are, are heavenly principles taught in earthly stories. Uh, heavenly principles taught in earthly stories. And this morning, we're going to look at another one. So if your Bibles turn to Luke chapter 14, we're going we're gonna to be there this morning. And as you're turning there, I have a question to ask you. Have you ever been on the outside looking in at a party? Uh, have you ever been on the outside looking in? Maybe you haven't been invited and you know other people who were invited or you've actually seen a party happening and you're like looking on the outside, looking in. I can remember a number of years ago, uh, Dan and I went out for New Year's Eve, and we went to uh, the Hilton in Harrisburg on 2nd Street. We went to eat at one of their restaurants there, and, uh, and we were walking to our car, and if you've ever been to Hilton, you know you need to go up the steps to the second floor, and you walk by the ballrooms to get to the parking garage. And as we're walking by the ballroom, there was the governor's New Year's Eve party. And the doors of the ballroom were open, and, and you looked in, you could see they had a big band playing, and there were, there were people dancing, and they had all this food, and it looked like a really, really great party. And as we're walking by, I remember saying to Dana, hey, why don't we go in? Why don't we go into the party? And, and she's like, well, we don't have tickets. And my response was, hey, there's nobody at the door. There's nobody at the door taking tickets. They wouldn't even know. Let's go in. And then she said to me, well, I don't have any place to put my purse. So we missed the party because of a purse. Uh, we missed that great opportunity to, to go to this party. Who knows if we would have gotten in or not, but, but all because of a purse. Pretty lame excuse, I think. But, uh, but this morning, you know, we're going to talk about a party that everyone is invited to. Everyone is invited to. And so, and so I think uh, before we really look at the parable, I think there needs to be some introduction done. We need to look at the verses preceding uh, this parable that Jesus tells in chapter 14. And, and in the verses preceding, we see a dinner party disaster. I mean, I'm sure you've been to some parties that have been just utter disasters. And I think this, is, this would ca categorize as one of those parties. Uh, Jesus is in the midst of a dinner party that has grown pretty intense. It's the Sabbath day, and Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee for lunch. 
In essence, he was invited into hostile territory to try to trap Jesus into violating the Pharisees' man-made Sabbath restrictions by healing a sick sick man. And in the first uh, six verses there in chapter 14, we see that Jesus comes to this party and and there's this sick man and the Pharisees are trying to see what is Jesus going to do here? And we all know what Jesus does. He proceeds to heal the man. He silences the Pharisees and he kind of exposes their hypocrisy. I mean, these are man-made rules that they said, hey, you're not, you can't do this, you can't do that on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus heals this man. And they're like, oh, he broke those rules. And Jesus turns the table and says, well, hey, what about you guys? You have all these man-made hypocritical rules, but you know what? If you have an oxen that falls in a well on the Sabbath, you'd save them. Because if you didn't, you'd be out a lot of money. And so you would save him. Or if you have a child that fell in the well on a Sabbath, you'd do something about it. You'd save them. And Jesus is like, so what's the difference? I just, I just healed this man. I, you know, I just saved his life. How am I any different than you? So he kind of points out the, the Pharisees' um, hypocrisy there. And the thing that I love about Jesus is he's an equal opportunity agitator. Uh, he just didn't stop with the, with the Pharisees. He turns his attention to the other dinner party guests, and he challenges their humility by criticizing them for taking seats of honor in verses 7 through 11. He tells them, hey, you know, what's, what's up with you guys? You're invited to this party, and you want, to, you want the best seats. Well, what happens if someone really important comes in? The host is going to have to ask you to move, and you'll be humiliated. He says, hey, take the lowest seats first, and, if, and if then if you're asked to move, you know, that, that's a good thing. And so, you know, so he, he's, he's criticizing the, the other guests because they're trying to find the best seats, the seats of honor at, at this party. And then he turns his attention on the host, and he, and he critiques him for only inviting people who would return the favor, exposing the host's arrogant pride and self serving focus. In essence, Jesus says to the host of the party, hey, you know what? You're a very civil guy. You have a lot of civility. You, you invite the people to your party that who will return the favor and show you kindness in return. You're a very civil guy, but you're not a, you're not a guy that's full of charity because you wouldn't invite anybody to your party who couldn't return the favor, who couldn't return the kindness back to you. So he tells this host that, you know what, you don't have a whole lot of charity. Look at what Jesus says in verses 12 to 14 there. He says, then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And though they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So here Jesus is at this party, and he pretty much calls everyone onto the carpet. He calls everyone onto the carpet. And at this point, the party was probably pretty silent and painful. It probably wasn't this, this great party that they thought it was going to be. And so someone there trying to salvage the, the awkward social situation breaks the tension at the table, taking what Jesus just said about the resurrection, and he makes a spiritual statement that they all could agree on. In verse 15, this, uh, this person says, Blessed is the one who eat 
at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. He tries to kind of break the tension and tries to kind of get everybody back on the same page. Jesus had just been calling out pretty much everybody in the room, and he's trying to make some peace here. And he says, blessed is is the one who eat at the, at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. And this is, this is a, a true statement. This is such a true statement. And, and it's, it's one of the great salvation promises from the Old Testament, that the king of kings is preparing an eternal banquet for his people. And it talks about this in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9, which says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheets that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So the, old, so the Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament, and they would have known this passage. They would have known about this great banquet that, uh, uh, that the one uh, guest just talked about, that everyone will be blessed and eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And the proclamation in Luke 14, 15 sounded good, and it describes the, the Pharisees' profound pride in their spiritual superiority. Matter, I mean, they, they were so prideful that they, they believed that they did enough good things that they'd partake of this banquet. But Jesus couldn't let this proclamation pass, and he told the parable of the great banquet to expose the true desires and motivations of the religious establishment. And then we see he goes and he talks about the parable of the great banquet. And he talks about this amazing extravaganza. It's a story about a super celebration. And in verse 16, Jesus replied and said, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. So Jesus starts off by telling a story about a man hosting a great feast or a grand, val- uh, grand gala. Now, uh, I, I you know, a picture of the best party that you have ever been invited to, and, 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 and maybe you've been to some great parties, better than I've been at, but, uh, but this is, I can imagine this is, this is even better. This is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. This is the social event of the year, and the greatness of this extravaganza originated from the enormous guest list that this man invited and the extensive menu of culinary treats and fine drinks. And so this was happening party. This was the ticket that you wanted to get. Uh, this, this is the, the place that you wanted to be. And to pull off this celebration of this magnitude, the man had to be both prominent and wealthy. So we see uh, this, this, this super celebration that's going down. Jesus starts to talk about that. And then he, and then he after he, t- he kind of describes the celebration, he talks about the invitations it talks about the amazing opportunity that some people are going to have. In verse 16, it picks up and says, And he invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who've been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. 
The gracious invitation to this amazing event would have come in two stages. And this is interesting. As I was looking at it this week, uh, they invited people a little bit different than we do today. They would have come in two stages. The first invitation would have informed the recipient that they were invited to the event. And they would respond accordingly. When, when the servant came and said, hey, my master is going to have this amazing party. You are invited. It's going to happen in a few days. And they would respond and say, hey, you know, sure, we're, we're going to be there. You know, we're planning on attending. And so they, they, they would make a firm commitment to attend. But unlike modern invitations, an, an exact date and time would have not been communicated due to the complexities of preparing the feast. And so the servants would come out and say, hey, my master's going to have this party. You're invited, and we'll let you know exactly when it's happening. But it's going to happen soon. Now, that probably wouldn't fly very well in our world today, where uh, we're very calendar-focused, and, and uh, you know, our calendars are booked full and everything like that. But, but this is how it happened back in Jesus' day. And it needed to happen because of the complexities of preparing the feast. I mean, uh, there wasn't giant down the street where they could just go and fill up their shopping carts and come home and, and, and just cook everything. Uh, they didn't have that, that, that ability to, to do that. There wasn't a giant back then. And so, so the number of people who accepted the invitation would determine how much food would be prepared and include how many animals needed to be killed for this amazing feast to feed all the guests. As I was reading this week, they gave some examples. They said a chicken would feed two to four guests. They said a duck would feed five to ten guests, a lamb ten to fifteen guests, a sheep fifteen to thirty-five guests, and a calf thirty-five to seventy-five guests. And so, and so the, the, the servant would go out and say, hey, my master's having this, this amazing uh, uh, party. And they would say, you know, I'm coming or I'm not coming. He'd bring the, the tally back from the guest list, and that would determine what they were going to prepare. Because they wanted to make sure they had enough food, and it would take some time to get ready. Now, a second invitation would, would then go out and notify the already in, invited guests that the banquet was ready to begin, that all the preparations were completed. So the host would send his servants out and go and tell everyone that they invited, hey, it's time to get the party started. It's time. You can come. We are ready. It's going to begin. And so the eagerly anticipated dinner party was ready to commence. And so, and so that's kind of how they invited people. And, and it's important to realize that once an animal was killed, it must be eaten sooner and spoil. And so, you know, when they came out the second time and said, hey, the party's ready, it's important that they came right away and that they, uh, and that they partake in the, in the party. In essence, you know, to back out at the last minute would be rude. It would be rude. It would be against uh, you know, all social etiquette. And the invited guests who responded firmly, uh, firmly they, they were almost required to come. They must be required to come. And so, and so we see this amazing opportunity. The invitations came out the first time and said, we're having a party. And then the second time, the servant said, hey, it's, it's time to get the party started. And then we see the excuses. Then we see some awful alibis. In verse 18, it's, it begins, it says, but they all alike began to make excuses. They all began to make excuses. The unthinkable happens. All the guests, not just a few, but all of them, began to make excuses for missing the event. 
This was completely contrary to party etiquette, and it was rude. No one invited to an extravagant dinner by a wealthy host would refuse to attend. It just didn't happen. It was just very rude and, and, and against uh, the common etiquette of the day. And Jesus then lists how a, a few of the, the guests responded and the excuses that they gave. And we'll see that they had no real rational reasons for refusing to attend the party. The first excuse was, hey, I'm going to go peruse some property. And in verse, in verse 18, it says, the first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, this excuse is ridiculous. The piece of land wouldn't move and it wouldn't change and it could be seen after the banquet. But no, this man said, hey, you know what? I, I bought a property. And I need to go look at it. I need to go look at it now. But no one would buy property sight unseen. So it's obvious he'd already looked at it. He checked it over before he purchased it. It's just a ridiculous excuse, but at least he was courtesy, uh, courteous enough and says, you know, please excuse me. It kind of reminded me of, of about 10 years ago in this time. Uh, Dana and I came here April 2014, and about 10 years ago in February, we were in Florida for a week with my, with my, parent, with my grandparents. And, uh, and while we were in Florida, we went online because we figured if we're moving to Elizabethtown, we need a place to stay. And, and so I went online, and I was looking at houses, and I actually found the house that we're living in online. And so, of course, I picked up the phone and called the realtor and said, I'll buy it. Right? Isn't that what you do? I mean, no, I, I didn't do that, but I picked up the phone, and I called the realtor and said, hey, you know, I found this house. I'd really like to come and look at it. I'd really like to come and look at it. And, and uh, once we got home from Florida, the next week we actually came to Elizabethtown and we looked at a few houses, including that house. And once we looked it over, we decided to buy it. That's normally how people, how, how people act. And, and that's normally how people acted in Jesus' day. Before they bought property, they went and they looked at it. They examined it to make sure that they were getting exactly what they said they were going to get to make sure it's exactly how the seller described it, to make sure it was exactly what they wanted. So this first excuse is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous excuse. But at least he was polite. I said, please excuse me. The second excuse was, you know what, I need to look over some livestock. In verse 19, another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now this excuse was nonsense. Once again, trying out newly purchased oxen was not urgent, and it could have been done after the banquet. Also, the man was able to afford five yoke or sets of oxen, so it suggested that he was a man of means. He certainly could have sent his servants to make sure that these oxen were all right. I mean, certainly he had other things he could do with his time besides go and test out his oxen. But, but he said, you know what, I, I need to go test them out. Again, he framed his excuse with at least some politeness, and he said, please excuse me. And it reminded me of when I used to work at a car dealership. And uh, on Fridays, we used to come to the Mannheim auto auction. And so, uh, and so we'd drive to the auto auction, and, and, my, and we're, while we're going there, my boss would say, hey, today I'm looking to buy some cars, some used cars for the, for the lot. And this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this type of car, this make, this model, this year with this many miles. And we'd get there, and, and he's like, okay, now go find me some good cars. 
So I'd walk around the, the parking lot, and if you've ever been to Mannheim, it's all one big parking lot. And, and, and I'd go and look and try to find the cars that he was looking to buy. And I'd go and I'd look at the interior, I'd start them up, I'd, I'd check out the exterior, I'd see if there's any scratches or any bumps, I'd, I'd see if you know, everything was, was in it and everything like that, because, I mean, the cars go through the auction block pretty fast, and you don't have time to really examine it beforehand. And so, so my job was to go and kind of examine them and make sure that they were worth trying out. And I can remember one exciting day uh, that I came across a Dodge Viper. He wasn't thinking about buying one, but I thought, hey, at least I can sit in, start it up, you know, check it all out, rev the engine, which is really cool. But, uh, uh, but, you know, my job was to go and check out these cars before he bid on them. That, that's, what, that's why he brought me along for the day, so that, so that I could come back and say, hey, you know, I think these cars are pretty decent cars, and he would make note and know where, which, which auction block they would come across and he, so he could purchase them. And the same is true here, you know. He probably tried these oxen out before. He probably had someone try them out, or he was there, or he watched them plow the field or something like that. So this, this excuse didn't hold any weight. Again, it was just another ridiculous excuse. But again, he was polite. He said, please excuse me. It leads us to excuse number three, which I call matrimonial madness. And, um, and it's in verse 20, it says, Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Uh, now, this excuse is absurd. Uh, just getting married would, would in no way restrict you from attending a party. And given the Pharisees' low view of women, they would have found that this excuse was outrageous. In fact, in first century Jewish society, women didn't dictate what their husbands could or could not do. And, and if the, the wedding celebrations in Jesus' day, they, they lasted a long time. They, they were usually like a week-long celebration. So it was a big deal. And, and no one would plan a party during, you know, one of those wedding celebrations. So it wasn't like even the wedding celebration was happening. That was over. And, and so this excuse wasn't, wasn't valid. And, and, and they couldn't even use the Old Testament exemption from military service or other duties for those who just got married, found in Deuteronomy 24, you know, that said, hey, you know, if you're recently married, you can't go to war for a year or hold any other duties. But that doesn't, that doesn't kind of translate into, hey, I can't go to a party because I just got married. That's just a ridiculous excuse. It's, it's not a valid excuse. Um, think about when you got married, that first year that you got married. I'm sure that you just spent the year with your wife that whole year and did nothing else. Anytime anyone invited you to do something or you said, no, I can't, I just got married. I'm staying home. I just got married. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, we, you know, after you get married, you still have to go to your jobs. You still have to, you know, you, you still have other family members and friends that you go see. You, you do other things. It was a ridiculous excuse. And so all the servants come back with these excuses from these people. And how do you think the host responds? He's angry. He's angry, and rightfully so, because these are lame excuses. In verse 21, it says, The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. The invited guest spurned his generosity and kindness, which insulted him personally and embarrassed him publicly. Think about what the people would say. Here's this great party 
that he threw and no one came. He would be the laughing stock of the town. It was an outrageous breach of social etiquette, unforgivable conduct that was only made worse by their terrible excuses. And their avoidance made the host very angry. He was upset. And so we see what he does next. We see the inclusion, and we see some remarkable requests. He says in verse 21, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there still is room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. The host decides there's too much time, too much effort, too much expense has gone into preparations for this party. So he's not canceling the event. If if the original people they invited aren't going to come, he's going to get a new guest list. And first of all, he invites the outcasts. He invites the outcasts. So the master sent his servants to to, to go out and invite the most unlikely individuals. And they went out to the streets and into the alleys to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And this would be no small task because they probably would have been reluctant to come knowing that the social etiquette of the day was, or the protocol of the day was, if someone extends you an invitation to come to a gracious uh, banquet, a, a big event, you know what, you're responsible to return the same kind of, uh, of, of invitation to them. And these people couldn't put on a spread like this. They couldn't put on a, a host a banquet like this. And so they were probably reluctant to come. For this wealthy host to invite these despised outcasts was almost as preposterous as the original guests' excuses for not coming. But he invites them to come. He invites them to come. And historically, from the time of the law given to Israel, the physically blemished were banned from full participation in worship. And we know that the Pharisees took that, uh, uh, that saying and that, that teaching from Leviticus 21, and they used it to justify, uh, justify their, their, um, their hatred and, and, and their, their uh, um, despising of people who were with disabilities. They were prejudiced against them. And so the, the master goes and he invites all of these people that the Pharisees would have despised. In Jesus' parable, the subclass of society, those thought to be of less noble standing, were called to the table. But even after that amazing invitation, what? There is still more room. There's still more room. The outcasts are invited, and there's still more room. So what do they do? The servants go, and they invite the foreigners. They invite the foreigners the servant was sent to find foreigners out on the highways and byways and invite them in. He went out to the road and the country lanes to find more people. And these people were even further down the social ladder than the outcasts. Foreigners were shady characters who had no home of their own and lived outside of towns in brothels and sleazy inns. These were not great people of society. They weren't. And yet they were invited to come. This would have taken a lot of time to track them down, and, and, and they probably would have been even more reluctant to come. They'd probably been like, okay, is this a joke on us? Are you just trying to invite us to the party just to be the entertainment and just to make fools of us? 
or, or, or is, this, is this legit? Is this real? And the host tells his servants, compel them to come in. And that means, you know, urge them to enter. The servant was to take no, was not to take no for an answer. The servant was to do everything he could to get them there. And the outcasts and the foreigners would need some convincing to respond to the invitation. So we see this great inclusion of the outcasts and the foreigners. This, this host is determined, you know what, the, the party's ready, we're going to have a party. And if the first people didn't come, if they despised me and they made up all these, these lame excuses, we're still going with the party. And I'm going to invite the outcasts and I'm going to invite the, the foreigners. I'm going to include them in this amazing opportunity. And finally, we see the exclusion. And we see a missed opportunity. And in verse 24, it says, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a table at my banquet. The outcasts and the social misfits would come and enjoy the dinner, but none of those originally invited would get a sample of the spread. They'd be on the outside looking in. At this point in the parable, it ceased from being a, hip, a hypothetical story. Jesus used the phrase, I tell you the truth, frequently in Luke's gospel as an application of truth. And Jesus wanted to make a point with the Pharisees. He wanted to be very, very clear. And this was an example of a personal confrontation with those Pharisees. He wanted to, he wanted to teach them an important truth, and he didn't want them to miss it. And we see that, that, that he, he does it there in verse 24. And so that leads us to try to Interpret, what, is, what does this parable mean? What is it saying? What, what, what is it trying to, to communicate to us? And, and as I've been studying it this week, I think there's some things that we can take away. First of all, the host or the head of the household represents God, who issues the invitation to the party, to the banquet. So the host represents God. The banquet represents salvation in God's eternal kingdom. The great banquet pictures the ultimate kingdom banquet in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb, a glorious celebration for all who are in Christ. And using the symbol of a feast for heaven is an important spiritual significance because it suggests eternal satisfaction. And so the, the, the picture of the banquet represents salvation in God's eternal kingdom. The first guests invited are Israel. And the first invitation came through the, through the Old Testament law and, prophet, and, and, the, and the Old Testament prophets. You know, the Israelites had said yes to the initial invitation. They accepted the Old Testament, and they knew that they were God's chosen people. And so they, they accepted that first invitation. But the second invitation had come through Jesus, and Israel said no and refused to attend. They had no interest in the banquet of God if Jesus was at the door to the banquet. If he was the door to the banquet, they had no interest. They were not interested in him or his gospel message. We know that Jesus offers us salvation, extending his gracious invitation. But you need to do something more than just talk about how nice it would be to go to heaven. You need to do something more than talk about how nice this amazing banquet's going to be. You need to respond by putting your faith and trust in Christ. And so the initial guests, uh, Israel had RSVP'd, but they were no shows. They were no shows. They didn't show up. And to make matters worse, they, they offered ridiculous and made-up excuses. The first two excuses involved material possessions, and the third, a relationship. 
They love their possessions and affections more than they loved God, and they long for worldly comfort more than heavenly bliss and blessing. And both types of these excuses have been offered for years by individuals instead of responding to God's invitation of salvation. They offer these excuses. Possessions, I got to take after care of this, or, or my other relationships are more important. Israel said yes to God's initial invitation and no to his second. Yes to God's promises and no to his son. And we know that judgment falls on all who reject God's invitation to salvation in Jesus. John the Baptist in John 3, 36 said this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So instead of experiencing God as a gracious host, those who reject his invitation to salvation will one day face him as sovereign judge and will forever be shut out of heaven. We look at the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame from the streets and the alleys, and they represent repentant Jews who recognized that they were unworthy sinners who were spiritually bankrupt in need of a Savior. They had more sense than the religious leaders of their day. They understood their sin. They understood their need of a Savior, and they responded correctly. The people from the roads and country lanes were foreigners. They were repentant Gentiles. And aren't we glad God extended his invitation just beyond Israel? That all of us, because God's heart was for the whole world, he, he communicated his salvation message not just to the nation of Israel, but he used his disciples to spread it throughout the whole world. And because of that, we got to hear about that. God wants his house to be full for dinner, and the invitation was not just for Jewish leaders or Jewish people in general, but for the Gentile nations of the world Paul said in Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to, that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. God was welcoming everyone, even people who had never had any connection with him before at all. There's more room at the banquet, and God wants as many people there as possible. This is the love that our Father has for all of his children in Christ impoverished by our sin, broken by pain, and disabled by our troubles in this fallen world, we are called to come to the banquet of God where Jesus welcomes us by his grace and satisfies and sustains us by his love. It's pretty amazing to think about because we we're the foreigners, we're the outcasts. And God invites us to be part of his banquet, to be part of his family. Jesus said in the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And here in Luke 14, in this parable, he says, go into the highways and byways and compel people to come to my banquet. Compel them, urge them, don't take no for an answer. As Christians, we're to take advantage of the opportunities we have in our community to communicate the gospel. Our words and our witness compel people to come in. Our words and our witness, they compel people to come to Christ. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the majority of the Israelites rejected God's invitation to salvation. And the tragic result of their rejection and their lack of faith in Jesus was the forfeiture of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. 
And if you catch anything this morning, I think this is really what the parable of the great banquet is telling us. And it's, it's simply this. Everyone who refuses God's invitation to salvation will be excluded from his eternal kingdom and shut out of the blessings of heaven that God has prepared for those who love and accept his son. That's really what this parable means. And Jesus was communicating to the Pharisees because they had rejected him. But you know what? It's not just the Pharisees who've rejected him. There are many people throughout the ages who have rejected him. This parable was, was really about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. The banquet was an ancient symbol of salvation. God wants to have fellowship with his people and to satisfy them with good things. And in closing, I want to read a, a quote from Philip Ryken and his commentary on Luke. And, and he says this, But have you come to Jesus for salvation? If not, then what is your excuse? People have always some reason or another for staying away from Jesus. But what business could be more important than making sure you have eternal life? What property could be more valuable to have than, to, than a title in heaven? And what relationship could ever be more important than the one you can have with God who made you and sent his son to die for your sins? If all you have to offer God are excuses, they will sound all too flimsy at the final judgment when the only people who sit down at God's great banquet table are people who actually came to Christ. Everyone who refuses God's invitation to salvation will be excluded from his eternal kingdom and shut out of the blessings of heaven. They won't be able to be a part of that amazing eternal celebration in heaven. Have you accepted God's invitation? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. Thank you for this parable that just reminds us that you are such an amazing, loving God that uh, not only did you create us, and even though we rebelled against you and sinned against you, that, uh, that you provided a way through your son, Jesus Christ, that we could know you, that we could be redeemed, that we could be forgiven, that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you that you love us so much that you invited us to be part of that great banquet in heaven with you for all eternity. Thank you that you sent Jesus, the ultimate invitation. And Lord, I know that for most of us, we, we've heard this before. We've been tr in church all our lives, but that doesn't, that doesn't guarantee that we're going to be there in heaven with you for eternity. Just because we've come to church all of our life, just because we've done so many good things, because we volunteered here or volunteered there, the only thing that matters is if we responded to the invitation and trusted your son and believed in him and accepted him as our savior. Lord, that banquet in heaven is going to be amazing because you're going to be there. And we're going to celebrate you for all eternity. Lord, help us not have any excuses not to respond to the invitation. In Jesus' name.
So as we close this morning, the good news is that uh, Jesus, God's son, he came to earth and paid the price for our sins. He died, he rose again, and because of that, he extends the invitation of salvation to all of those who will put their faith and trust in him. That is the good news of the gospel. You know what the other good news this morning is? For those of us who have responded and said yes to the gospel, the other good news is, you know what? The banquet is not full. There's still room. And so as we leave this morning, as we go throughout our week, let's look for opportunities to share that good news that, that we've responded to with other people who need to hear about it because there is room at God's banquet for them if they'd recognize their sin and trust Jesus as their Savior. Let's not miss those opportunities this week. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.